0: AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And we are joined by the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. That is Patrick Coolican, who is going to be talking about some of the news stories that they have been working on today. And coming up, we are going to be chatting about comments from Tina Smith and Amy Klobuchar on the scandal with New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez and whether they think he should resign. We'll also be talking about Patrick's cool. Patrick's column uh, on SROs and the fact that the Republicans have uh, very much successfully used that as a wedge issue. And plus, we will follow up on a topic we talked about last week, and that is the importance of implementing many of these great programs that the DFL passed during the past session. We talked about last week the importance of implementation, and lo and behold, we have an example of uh, maybe not implementing things so well with the Cannabis Commissioner resigning on her first day. We'll be talking about all of those. Hey, thanks so much for coming back on today. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, let's start off talking about our two U.S. Senators from Minnesota, our two DFL Senators, Tina Smith and Amy Klobuchar. Because as you've probably seen in the news, at least in the U.S. Senate, New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez has been facing a a growing course of people calling for him to resign including several members of the US Senate he is of course is involved in a corruption scandal with uh, probably my favorite part the fact that he has about a hundred thousand dollars of gold bars just sitting around his house because who doesn't carry gold bars? But we do now have some comments from Tina Smith and Amy Klobuchar after uh, largely not saying a whole lot about the Bob Menendez scandal yesterday. As today, we do have some information from Amy Klobuchar saying that she would like to see Bob Menendez rec- uh, resign from the Senate. So we do have Amy's stance. Have we heard anything from Tina Smith on whether she is calling for uh, Senator Menendez to step down as well? Or are we still kind of waiting to hear from her as well?
1: No, she says uh, that these are serious charges, uh, but that everyone is
0: entitled to due process.
1: Um, And uh, also, uh, we should note that uh, Senator Smith is apparently uh, tested positive for COVID 19, so she was not able to get back on a plane and head back to Washington. Uh, She's not uh, suffering serious symptoms. Um, But uh, Senator Klobuchar yesterday uh, also said serious called the user serious allegations and said there ought to be an investigation by the U.S. uh, Senate Ethics Committee. She stopped short of calling for his resignation, uh, but she seems to have uh, come around to resignation today, um, perhaps notably after a a dozen of her Democratic colleagues in the Senate uh, also called for Menendez's resignation and most notably, I think, uh, Cory Booker, his New Jersey colleague. Um, I uh, I was a little confused yesterday and even over the over the weekend why there wasn't more of uh a drum beat on this. Um, um the, you know, the the question of, of whether or not Menendez is, is uh innocent or really guilty or deserves uh, due process. I mean those that's a given. It's just a question of whether or not he uh should be serving in the US Senate after uh, really embarrassing the institution and um and, and how distracting this is all going to be as he tries to serve and also run again in 24. And then also it's a distraction uh, uh, to uh, his colleagues and, and uh, to the, the very people that he's supposed to be championing uh, there in New Jersey, um, uh, also that uh, he can hang on to power. Um, and uh, so I think this is the right call. Uh, it makes it much easier for Democrats uh, to run, um, in 24 to hold the Senate and the White House when they, they, uh, um, can run with clean hands, um, especially running against, uh, this Republican tater bear in, in, former President Trump who faces 90 something charges. Uh, so you're running an anti corruption campaign and it's much easier to do that without Menendez.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then you just look at the fact that, well, at least we have Democrats calling for this guy Menendez to resign when you compare that to uh, Republicans, as you brought up with Donald Trump, obviously facing those 91 criminal charges. And you can even look at Texas with Ken Paxton uh, being acquitted and not being removed from his position, despite facing uh, many corruption allegations as well. I want to move on to another story, and this has to do actually with your column that you wrote recently titled Heat But No Light About School Safety, as we're now going to be switching gears and talking about SROs in schools. So it's been mentioned on this show many times, I know Matt has been bringing this up many times, that the debate over SROs in schools is very much political theater for the Republicans. And that certainly seems to be the case with police now returning to many schools without that special session that Republicans were asking for. The debate was largely over whether police and schools should be able to hold students in a prone position, meaning basically on their stomach. So you can't put a kid down on a stomach and then... Put that person in a hold that prevents them from speaking or breathing. That was, uh, as I understand, largely in the new law that was passed in the state legislature, which to me seems to be kind of uncontroversial since we did pass this a few years ago, at least when it applied to prisons without any controversy. So I'm curious, Patrick, because you brought this up in your column, and I think it's an important point. What are the actual numbers for SROs in schools? Do we even have many schools with police officers? Because the framing we get from Republicans is that, well, basically every school in Minnesota has a police officer serving, which uh, generally is not the case.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of alarmist rhetoric that uh, tried to care all um, about how with the, these police departments pulling their officers uh, over the lack of clarity, quote-unquote, about the law, that suddenly uh, all the schools had become uh, dangerous places. And um, the reality is that uh, certainly nationwide, uh, fewer than half of public schools have an SRO uh, or police officer in school um, once a week. And in Minnesota, we don't have real recent data on it, but there was a survey done in 2014 that showed it was uh, less than 30%. I expect it's probably higher because of school shootings and communities um, have decided to put police in schools, although I'm not certain that it's actually going to make your school, uh, the typical school, much safer. But uh, that just gives you some indication. We're talking about a third of schools. Um and, and not only that, but then you, you have all these schools where the local police department did not pull their uh, school resource officers. Um, and you know you wonder, well, well, why, if this is um, if if the, the law created such uh, chaos and confusion, uh, why were there so many departments who were fine to uh, instruct their officers to abide by it? Um, but the the idea that there was some school safety, a crisis because of this law, or because uh, some departments pulled their their officers out, um, I, it doesn't doesn't really match the data. Well,
0: and speaking of the data too, you brought up the fact that crime levels for kids has been dropping dramatically over the past twenty years, which doesn't surprise me. But uh, as I'm sure you'll bring up, the uh, the the crime rate for kids has been dropping very very quickly. Uh, I believe what almost eighty percent since about two thousand one, correct? Right. Our,
1: our data reporter, Chris Ingram, um, he tallied up the juvenile arrest. And from 2001 to 2022, the number of teenagers arrested in Minnesota fell from 52,000 to 10,500. That is a it's a decrease of almost 80 percent. Um, you know, and it's possible that well, I think it's true that there's been a concerted effort to keep kids out of this criminal justice mm-hmm. system. But I mean, that said, we, we're also familiar with with all the survey data around. Kids being um, more risk averse than they used to, they and and a lot of us think this is kind of a bad thing. They're not learning to drive, uh, they're not drinking or having sex or dating, or even spending time with friends as much because they're sitting in their bedrooms on their phones. Um, so you know, I don't think that's a great development. But the reality is, when you're sitting in your bedroom on your phone, you're not out um, engaging in dangerous behavior. Um, and so, just overall, um, this. You know, to use the old fashioned phrase, juvenile delinquency is kind of down. Um, and, and so this, all this fear around, um, kids out there, uh, committing crimes and we need to have police in schools also seems misplaced. That said, clearly the pandemic, uh, was tough on kids especially, and it, uh, but not just kids. We've seen antisocial behavior amongst kids and adults. I uh, mean, we've all seen the videos of, uh, the, of uh, Airport violence and airplane violence and that kind of thing, and people just seem to be have kind of um, have struggled with their mental health through the pandemic and that was certainly true uh, probably more than anyone of, of teenagers. so I don't want to minimize uh, that uh, disruption and, and discipline issues uh, are important, and we ought to have a discussion about it um, i'm just dis- I'm disappointed that this is the discussion that we had.
0: Yeah, because I I think as you and I have been talking right now, we've largely established that, yeah – There certainly is some crime among youth right now, but not nearly the dramatic spike that's being portrayed right now by Republicans. And then we've also largely established that, well, most schools don't even have police officers within their schools and that this new law that was passed recently really didn't have that much of an impact on SRO. So I guess my next question would be, how did the Republicans nearly get this strategy to successfully work? Because uh, it was kind of a brilliant strategy to all of a sudden make this a wedge issue out of nowhere and kind of uh, catch the DFL largely flat-footed on this when they, they made a big issue out of this over the past few weeks.
1: Yeah, it was well t- I mean, I can't speak to I don't have any kind of inside dope on how they uh, managed to uh, pull this off. But I can say, you know, just observing, um, they, they rolled it out um, right as the school year started, which was, I think, uh, pretty smart. And then, uh, you know, every few days, uh, a new a district, often a legislative battleground district, would announce that the the the, the, the police agency was pulling their officers from the schools, um, and there was kind of a steady drumbeat of news that way. And then also the Democrats were flat-footed, and um, I think they made some tactical errors in, in how they approached this. To a degree, there was there was not much they could do because they were divided on the issue. They they had some. Members who probably would have liked to have gone into a special session to repeal the law or change the language. Uh, then they had others who absolutely are against uh, police and schools uh, completely. Um, but, and so there was, there was always going to be uh, that uh, vulnerability um, that the Republicans could exploit. Um, and then, you know, Democrats did some things that were probably advised. Uh, Governor Walls was kind of. Uh, back and forth on whether or not he was open to a special session. Uh, and, uh, Speaker Hortman released a letter. There were two separate, uh, attorney general, uh, opinions on the law. Uh, there, the House and Senate progressives kind of leaked a letter that, uh, didn't seem to be very well coordinated. So it was, it was a really kind of, uh, slapdash response. Um, and, um, and, and the, and the local news media, facing a bit of a maybe a news vacuum of sorts um to kind of hit everything you know every time there was a new um uh, incremental uh turn of the screw as we say uh it, it, the news media covered it and so we wound up with a, with a month of stories
0: yeah we largely did and the republicans did do a nice job kind of uh portraying that issue as well but uh we ended up not having a special session, and lo and behold, the issue will hopefully uh, begin to fade over the next few uh, weeks and months as SRS do end up uh, returning to schools. You can read more about that column again over at minnesotareformer.com titled, Heat But No Light About School Safety. I want to move on to another story you guys have been working on and relate that to the column that you wrote last week talking about the implementation of many of these government programs that the DFL passed over the past uh, year or so. And let's go to the Department of Cannabis where cannabis entrepreneur Aaron Dupree, who was set up to uh, lead the Department of Cannabis at the uh, state government level – was uh, basically accused and caught selling edible products with twice the amount of legally allowed THC. She had been promoting her products on her store's TikTok account and apparently left those posts up even after her appointment to the public office was made. Governor Tim Walls originally praised Dupree's record of maintaining compliance with state laws and regulations. And then at least two people also won court judgments against Dupree for unpaid wages for work she failed to perform. The IRS and the Minnesota Department of Revenue also had outstanding liens against her for tens of thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes going back to 2011. So – as I said, this goes exactly to what we were talking about last week and the importance of the implementation of the programs. Certainly uh, passing the programs is only the first step, but now you got to implement them. And it definitely looks like the vetting process, uh, to say the least, uh, could have been a lot stronger with Dupree, given the track record we've been seeing uh, come out about her over the past few days.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, it took reporters... Uh, uh Star Tribune and NPR reporters all of twenty four hours uh, to uh, find the stuff in her background and 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 they they found the stuff and they got it published within twenty four hours which means they probably found the stuff within a few hours Um, not uh, as the governor himself said not our not the finest hour I think was his line Um, and uh, but I think it you know the 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 failure is back at the beginning. And that is, uh, why are they turning to someone who's in the industry? And it's not like this is some industry titan either. Mm-hmm. She, um, she has a small shop in Apple Valley, um, and is apparently selling, um, non-compliant products there. Um, rather than find, going to the, somebody who, uh, is going to focus on, uh, the regulatory regime, and that is somebody who's got experience in regulation. It doesn't even have to be cannabis regulation, although there are now almost two dozen states where uh, adult use cannabis is legal and therefore you, you could have found a regulator from one of those states. But the reality is, is that if you can regulate, you know, if you're a, a skilled regulator, you don't necessarily need that subject matter expertise right up front. Um, and so, and one of, one of the risks of regulation is what we call industry capture. So that's you know when somebody uh, from the uh, from Wall Street winds up as a as a, the the head of the SEC, or somebody from the coal industry is regulating uh, worker safety. I mean, this is classic uh, uh, practice in in Republican politics, although it certainly bleeds over into, into Democratic administrations as well. And um, usually um, you. Usually, it's it's a little more concealed than in this case where they just they hire somebody who runs a THC shop. Um, so it was just baffling, right on its face. Uh, I'm, I was glad to hear. I only saw the headline, but apparently the governor said today at an event that he's really going to focus. Uh, they're going to look for a candidate with, with, from the regulatory side. Um, so it was really a. Uh, not, not a great, uh, moment for the Walls administration, um, uh, and, uh, let's hope that they learn their lesson and are gonna, uh, figure out, uh, how to prevent this kind of thing from happening again and, and get the right person in place
0: yeah and I like the point you brought up where I think it 's important to bring people into those positions that have experience regulating rather than just bring bringing someone in from industry, like i'm remembering when I think it was Scott Pruitt, who was the head of the EPA during the Trump administration, thinking well that guy 's directly from the industry he 's supposed to regulate. What do you think is necessarily going to happen because now, on its face, it's you think there you might think, well, yeah, that makes sense. Let's put someone from the industry in charge of this department, but generally you do want them to have some experience regulating those as well, because you can certainly run into some of the problems we've had right now where this could very easily de- delay the timeline for opening many dispensaries around Minnesota and really back up the pro back up the process and possibly even lead to a little bit of a lack of trust in the process when all of a sudden on the first day we're having someone resign from that position.
1: Yeah, um, I, I think you, you bring up a good point about trust, um, and this is something that we've we've talked about before. That uh, if when if you want government to do things, um, and and Democrats do, uh, then then you need people to trust that uh, the government's going to be run efficiently and competently and fairly, and this kind of thing. Um, you know, I mean, I think it, it's not necessarily going to change anyone's mind about legalization. Um, but this kind of thing, it, it just accumulates um, in the public's mind, and uh, they hear this sort of uh, uh, misfire, and they hear about this stuff over and over again, and pretty soon they, they lose trust in government over the course of uh, years. And, and, and we're in a, a, a years-long, decades-long uh, battle here, um, and you always have to keep that in mind.
0: Absolutely. Well, you can read, uh, I'd encourage you to go back and uh, check out Patrick's column from last week talking about the implementation and the the importance of implementing these programs because, as we said, uh, lo and behold, look at the example this week with the Department of Cannabis. Well, you can read more about all of the great work that the Minnesota Reformer does over at minnesotareformer.com. Again, go to minnesotareformer.com. As we have been speaking with Patrick Hulakan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. As always, hey, thanks for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950.